says yeah. Hey, it's Kevin Pollack, your host for episode 21 of my Mrs. Maisel pod. Welcome back. How have you been? Uh, according to your emails, you're doing A-OK, and it's good to know that. Um, please continue to write to us, of course, my Mrs. Maisel pod at Gmail. Love reading all you have to say, your comments, your questions, your insights, your reminders, um, your casting ideas for who to have on the show. All of this is appreciated, as well as your continuing efforts to get the word out. Tell everyone you've ever met sort of thing. Yeah, it's a beaten drum and a, a replaying recording of me saying that. But, you know, it really does make a difference to rate, review, and subscribe. Um, so today, we are going to take a look at the uh, episode one of season three. And it's as it turns out, my guess, Katrina, Katrina Lenk, uh, we, we had a, ourselves a time, such a delightful time, that it's going to have to be broken into two episodes. So this will be part one of my Mrs. Maisel Pod episode 21 with Katrina Lake. Uh, Tony Award-winning Katrina Lake. Yeah. She's exceptional and um, plays the most interesting character on the show, a, uh, <laughs> which we'll talk about. Um, she, of course, won her Tony for a band's visit with our own Tony Shalhoub, who also won a Tony Award for that. In fact, I remember he won while we were shooting, I think, in the Catskills, or I remember some sort of, yeah, it had happened just before we went to the Catskills during the shooting of season two. Anyways, very exciting, very amazing, and and this was an exceptional guest that I really enjoyed talking to. Um, I, I tried to get as many women on the show as possible as guests, not just for obvious reasons, which is this is a female-centric um, series, story, creation, created by. Uh, but also, I, as a host of a conversation, will always find um, women to be ultimately... <laughs> 91% more interesting than men. Almost every, <laughs> it's almost without exception. Now, is that, uh, you know, you can draw your own conclusions. And also, the 9% of men that are clearly more uh, interesting, not by much. It's just by a little. Um, yeah. So my, it, it, the truth of the matter is, it's it's out of respect to this almost entirely women-centric effort that is the marvelous Mrs. Maisel. So um, I'm in, I'm in um, sort of uh, aware mode, but also interest and, and enjoyment mode when talking to someone like Katrina Lank. Um, so here uh, we'll get to episode 21, part one. There's also a, uh, a fan email. Thank you, fans, writing into my Mrs. at gmail.com. I'll be reading one of your emails uh, later in the program. Um, yeah, so in the meantime, 
Thank you for joining. Thank you for returning. Thank you for engaging, involving. Please enjoy my conversation, part one, with Katrina Lang. And now, ladies and Jews, please welcome <laughs> Katrina Link. Katrina. Hello. Welcome to the proceedings. <laughs> Thanks. Now, Thanks for having me. Do you have <laughs> do you have a lot of experience in the interview podcast world or the television interview world or the YouTube interview I've world? I've done some, I've done some not podcasts, but some some interviews and they always yeah. make me very nervous. So I'm now is no exception and now I am I am nervous. Yeah, unless you have training being yourself on oh mic or camera instead of a character you're portraying. It doesn't yeah. make a lot of sense to most actors. I know the first time I met the great and you're forced to call him Bob De Niro <laughs> and he found out I was a stand up. He was just really uh uh afraid to even talk about it yeah i mean it, it was a whole lot of i don't understand how you do that you know you know <laughs> i'll be honest with you i don't i don't I, he's, wow. there's, there's no script you just stand up there and you just i don't get it you know you have transformed just now i'm looking at you and it <laughs> it's like i'm seeing robert de niro it's an issue yeah yeah and, <laughs> and there's a there's a little bit of a youtube uh, rabbit hole you can follow the rest of my shenanigans on but um yeah, people who, who like yourself, uh, are able to lose their own identity within a character when acting, uh, then have a, a little intimidation issue with talking as themselves in an interview setting. That's a very kind way of putting it. I'm going well, to tell that to myself instead of just. It makes sense. What's though. wrong with me? Yeah. I mean, yeah. It just, yeah. I love to try to find the logic and everything. I'm not sure if you noticed that. <laughs> um, so, yeah, and I mentioned in the invite that uh, my better half, Jamie, who's our research producer on this here pod, um, we did see you in company and we just mesmerized. The whole show was great, but, but, thanks, um, thanks. yeah, I'm, I'm uh, uh, the opposite of everyone else who works on Maisel. That is to say, I know very little about the theater and its hi mm. rich history and, and all the things, you know, uh, I, I, every time we go to the theater, I love it. I have an incredible time. Because I started out in stand-up, I never understood the concept. Why would I want other people on stage? Wait a second, what? <laughs> How does this? And I talk to them? Well, that makes no sense. Uh, but every funny. time I go, I'm transfixed. Um, and so, yeah. So am I, I, that's all a big lead up as a way to, qualify that I may be wrong when asking uh okay. are you the first woman to play that part uh certainly on Broadway in, yeah in, in America Rosalie Craig uh actually was the first woman to play it in the London production that they sure. did in... should we call that the West End just so I feel like I know what I, I'm talking about yes that sounds good West End okay West End uh uh and Patty Lapone was in that as well and then when they brought it here they had an all-American cast so Rosalie Craig would be the first, and then I guess then I would be the second, but first American. Yeah. The idea yeah. of a woman in that part was born in the UK. Um, yeah. Uh, so what are your feelings when they come to you to do it in the on Broadway? Um, 
that's very funny. Uh, well, I guess I, I kind of came to them. I mean, I auditioned ah, for it and, sure. you know, had to go through a, a process of auditioning and callbacks and work sessions and stuff. Do so. you, do you bring the Tony with you to the audition? Um, you know, it, I, it's, it's usually, such a power move. it's usually getting cleaned or, <laughs> you know, there you go. so the timing, yeah. the timing of it. Um, I just picture a uh, yeah. pit pit crew from Formula One who come into the house cleaning the Tony. Yeah, it requires. That's what it requires. It's very serious business. It's sure. a lot of marble. It's, it's very heavy. I, I can't pick it up. No, no, no. no. Yeah, um, yeah. I should I should mention to folks who who are as ignorant as myself. Um, the Tony was for the band's visit, and you stood side by side with your co-star Tony Shalhoub at yeah. Tony's with having you both won. Yeah, that was pretty. That was pretty neat. <laughs> and both of your first Tonys awards, right? I'm. Oh, I didn't know it was. I. I guess I don't. I. I don't know if it was Tony's first, but he should have many. You're not wrong. To he should have many. Yeah. I just remember him saying. Like... Yeah, he's got I know Emmys. It was his first. In yeah. every room of the house, but yeah, oh, the cleaning bills for those. Jeez. Oh, I don't even. Want um, I know it was his first musical. Yes. So he was. Yeah, he was. And he can't he really good. sing, can he? Oh yes, of course he can. All right. I guess I just I just know from what he's <laughs> what he's said. Don't I, believe I a word. I didn't see the production. Don't believe he, what he says. <laughs> he really insisted that he cannot, in fact, sing. Yeah. No, he did. He did, and he had to do the hardest thing for a singer, which was just sing a cappella without any musical accompaniment whatsoever. Just pick the note out of the air and stay in tune wow. through a whole. Yeah, so he had the hardest job, and he nailed it. Yeah, but it comes with that built-in wonderful excuse. I had no accompaniment. You know, that's that's true. That's true. I would like that. <laughs> uh, so you auditioned for a company, uh, Tony mm -hmm. Left at Home Award, and. Um, that's how your you you got in the whole thing. Yeah, yeah. There was a particularly nerve wracking final work session where Sondheim himself showed up. Oh my! Uh, and this was pre COVID, so it was live. They were like in the room behind. They were sitting behind the table, and there was a piano. And oh, oh hello, man. Steven Sondheim. No big deal. I'm just gonna sing like all of the songs in your face right now. Okay. <laughs> What? Oh God! Yeah, it was one Is of. Is that a musical of version of line readings? What do you mean he sang all the songs? No, I mean all the songs that the character sings that I was auditioning for. I had to sing for. You had to sing for him. Got it. Yeah, yeah. I pictured him breaking out in song. My mistake. Oh gosh! If only I would have loved it. That, if he would have. That yeah. would have been. That would yeah. have been. Um. Oh yeah, doing yeah. it in front of him. I. I. Uh, yeah. I don't no know pressure. that there. That 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 should exist in life in any profession. Yeah. <laughs> in front of the inventor you have to yeah well i mean it, that's kind of the way how Maisel is you have to do it in front of the people that wrote it and created it and are directing it so kind of the same a little Great. bit thank you for the transitional help <laughs> uh i almost forgot why we were here um no you didn't audition no i refuse to believe that Oh no, not the auditioning part, but like when you when you're doing a scene in front of the people that wrote the scene, it's it's similar kind of 
feeling of like you don't you want to make sure you do what they intended and you don't want to mess it up and yeah I hope you, you know and did you receive almost no direction when when you stood in front of either amy or dan directing because they oh, don't they, our, our, our experiences yeah. pace it up pace it up pace it yeah they were very much into the pacing and which i just loved about getting to be directed by the person who wrote and created the series is like Amy knows exactly how she wants it to sound and how the rhythms should be. It is and then, yeah. Yeah, yeah, and she's always she's always right. So, um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, you yes. know, that was fun to just be like, okay, I'll do whatever, I'll do whatever you say, great. Although um, your character didn't have to pace it up, as I recall. Well, certainly she not was like, way. yeah, she was like one of the slower, the slower speaking individuals. <laughs> well, it's it's beautifully paced. Um, without the normal speed, because mm -hmm. we, we as the audience watching, are desperately trying to fill in the blanks of what this woman is thinking and what she's about to say, and the delay of that information is killing me. Oh, Why okay. is she just staring Rose down before she speaks <laughs> with her hanging slice of pizza? <laughs> That's what I remember. <laughs> oh, gosh, so much pizza. I ate a lot of pizza that day. Yeah. Yeah. It was good pizza too, from what I remember. Do you have a favorite um, person in film who you watch eating and you think, I I don't know how they're doing it? Because you know the the thing about eating on camera is yeah. you really have to pace yourself. Yeah, you cannot uh, take big bites. You have to take the teeniest bites in the world. Do you do you remember any story of how you learned that? I learned that by doing all the wrong things. I think yeah. in this particular episode, actually, it was. <laughs> wow. I was like, oh, I'll just take a bite of pizza, whatever. And then uh -oh. several takes later, I'm like, oh, no, that was not a good idea. So they kindly brought a cup and I would take a bite, yeah. chew it, and then spit it out. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I that's how I learned about that. Like, oh, right. I can't actually eat as much pizza as I want. I, I learned on Avalon, we were shooting Thanksgiving for three days, felt like three years, and it was my first real dramatic film, And um, but I was encouraged by Barry Levinson, the writer-director, to be very loose and natural and don't ever act. And so uh, I came to set that first morning, we were shooting three days of Thanksgiving, and I was starving. <laughs> And then I had to match that. You had to match it. Eating for three days. Because it was my first. I mean, I was so naive. We were on location and I was so naive. I went to the production office and timidly asked one day on an off day, do, is it, do you know where I would get stamps? You know, the production office can have someone killed when you're on location. True. And I'm looking, I'm looking to buy some stamps. Did you find stamps? Oh, Did sure. Did they have but, stamps? Oh, sure. But I also, I also, I'm realizing as I'm saying this, I could have just gone to a post office, but it was 1989. There were, you couldn't Google where's the post office. No, you can't. But, no, no. But, uh, but also because of my first time away on a location shoot for three months, I packed from home as if I were moving there for three months, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. like mm -hmm. not a set of clothing that I could wash. No, no. Right. No. Three months of. No. Yeah. Trunks. Like steamer trunks yeah. as if a, as if a mazel was packing right and uh, all the books you're ever meant to read uh, all the books you ever meant to read to read oh my god 
Yeah. Well, you like red books. All I the books you ever meant to read. <laughs> oh, um. uh, speaking of which, you must have read. Um, I talked pretty one day. I guess I, I guess I did. Sedaris, David Sedaris. Yeah. Yeah. It might even be me talk pretty one day. Me, it might be, yeah. Uh, <laughs> so you're not alone. Um, well, damn it, let's let's uh, well tell me um, about your before we go break down the episode that you're not in. Tell me about your first day on the Maisel uh, production. Was it a wardrobe fitting? Was it a table read? Was it a first day of shooting? What was the let me reach back into the recesses yeah. of my memory. I guess it was like 2017. And is that five years ago? Oh mm. my God. Wow. I know. Yeah. Well, yeah, that's mm. crazy. Minus the two years that didn't happen. Yeah. yeah. Uh, time warp. Yeah. I guess we, yeah, we must have started with a wardrobe fitting with um, Donna, Donna yeah. Zakowski, right? And it was so, I think we had two different, no, no. So there's a day, but it was like several hours and she had all of these like actual vintage clothing pieces to choose from like the turban that, that wears from the 50s or something. It's all from that era and all this jewelry. It was, it was really fun trying on all these different scarves and jewelry and all this authentic vintage clothes. Yeah. The detail she would apply to every single garment was also i mean you can see it through the whole series obviously it's really incredible yes yes and i encourage people this time of year when they're starting to think about christmas gifts check out donna's book weirdly available on amazon yeah it's oh. a beautiful photo coffee table book i guess you call it because it's so big and it's all her uh, life of creating the maisel look extensive oh. it, it is beautifully laid out and I'm a writing great, this down. Great Christmas gift. Yeah. Thanks for that. Yeah, no. In fact, I'm going to give, I threatened to give away a couple of um, um, signed copies to listeners. We're going to create some contests. No. I, so, so I had Don on the podcast and we did talk about all of these things. And you mentioned the turban and the thing. So the fun for her would have been this this is a character who's a period shyster right so she's uh -huh. dressing she's costuming herself yeah to look like right so all mm -hmm. of the layers of yeah mm -hmm. oh gosh yeah. yeah right performing the performing <laughs> in a way yeah <clears throat> super super great and did you yeah. eventually attend a table read I don't think I ever did a table read. We This was both episodes. So there's, I think, one in season one and one in season two. And each time I was doing, um, I was lucky enough to get to be doing a, a show. I was doing theater at the time. I think the first time was Indecent and the second time was Fans Visit, if I'm remembering right. So I didn't, my schedule was so tight. Yeah. Um, and the production was really great about like, we'll just bring you in and then get you out in time for curtain. So I didn't, I'm, I'm not even sure I would have been available to go to the table read, but I wish I could have because i bet they're really fun oh yeah yeah they're they're they've been talked about too much on this podcast but um <laughs> that's how fun they are they have been yeah um 
it's yeah so i'm always curious what people's experience was and then amy directed mm -hmm. the episodes mm -hmm. you dan, dan was there too but it was mostly yeah amy did most of the directing yeah yeah and we were all in that tiny little room where the fortune teller happens and so yeah <laughs> so amy was sitting on this very big plush velvety chair like that's in the scene but when you know the camera is not on her she was sitting there and um there's a full little kitchen that i would come from and it just even just yeah. the details in the set and things that you might not even see on camera were just so good so good and yeah. juicy yeah. yeah bill groom and his whole team making every square inch of the frame a composition mm -hmm. yeah the painting um indeed and this was on set these or, or mm -hmm. practical locations the first time no they're no. both on set yeah both builds yeah great yeah Phenomenal. yeah yeah uh, um well anything from those experiences that come to mind along our journey here please uh if it's if it presents itself i'd, I'd love to hear any more um i don't want to uh press you any further for uh, <laughs> coughing up any juicy tidbits of <laughs> in, inside information but if there's anything in particular that comes to mind, I, okay. I, I, I would invite you to share. Okay. Um, season three uh, starts off in the most ginormous. Oh my gosh, yes. I mean, it starts off very small inside Joel Maisel's office bedroom. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, the morning after the season finale of season two, where they wake yeah. up course um yeah had had you watched the series yes prior yes okay yeah okay. so i had to also remind myself where we were in the story yeah um and they do such a good job about with that too at the beginnings of each season there's the the way that you're reminded about what happened before is done so well and so seamlessly integrated with the with what's happening now it's so good and yeah. i love that it started with the camera just tight on tight on midge and mm -hmm. you're kind of remembering with her right the night before and then it pulls out and then you see joel and then just that whole beautiful quiet moment and then yeah. bam all those tap dancing girls at the uso yeah also the sound uh bridge as midge that great little time jump when she leaves his bedside and what leaves frame and comes back fully dressed and ready to leave. Oh, yes. <laughs> it's so clever. But then as she walks yeah. away, the the sound bridge from the following scene of so many toes tapping mm -hmm. on mm -hmm. that USO show stage. Um, yeah. It, it looks like she's marching off uh, with many feet of her own, but yeah. yeah we're then swept into this you know this is where you this military base uso show um it, it almost like it feels like uh what 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 we all sort of celebrated working on the show which is this mandate between the previous season and the next season they would we assume be in there room of story arc breaking and season arc breaking and then that moment of yes but how are we going to start the season we have uh, to be 
bigger than last year. We have to be more grand. And yeah. But they did you... it this one for sure. I mean, <laughs> we, yeah, they, they, uh, yeah, yeah. These wonderful, extraordinary uh, dancers just take your breath away. Yeah. Um, and also the camera has that incredible move from on the dancers pretty close up to pulling all the way back to the back of the mm -hmm. airplane hangar. And I know it's an airplane hangar because the, the camera pulls so far back. We actually, this place is so huge. It is housing two uh, fighter yeah. planes uh, along with 980 background actors in, in full wardrobe. Wow. Yeah, we apparently wow. set a record. That's not uh, something you can do now, I guess, huh? I mean, yay, yay COVID. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we, we, the last, since we started back to work and shooting in COVID in 21 and 22, we carry, I think they said at least 100 background extras and test background actors and test them as much as they test the series regulars. Mm. Um, mm. So, but, but, but in this case, 980, <clears throat> and I, and I asked Donna, so wait, you, you had, wardrobe fittings you don't just throw green clothing at 980 peach yeah we had wardrobe fittings for 980 wow wow <laughs> yeah 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 wow <laughs> yeah it's so it's so beautiful wonderful and impressive and ridiculous and also what a great way to be swept into this fictional world and definitely and then can we talk about please can we can we just talk about the the camera work when we when first um midge and susie appear on the jeep yeah. and the, oh, we're, the, we're gonna it's is it one is it one take okay i, so, I had to rewind it and watch it again i'm like oh my god how did they do this so yeah so there there is a oneer here i timed it i thought it was going to be much longer um it comes in impressed. at about it comes in at about three minutes. It <laughs> felt like 10 minutes. So much happens. So much that, happens. That I too watched it several times. And I'm glad you mentioned it because I foolishly wrote it all down. Uh, uh, oh. At the two minute, nine second mark of this episode, that's already spectacular with the dancing and the 900 men in 1960. I, I don't think there were many women in uniform. Um. At the two minute, nine second mark of the episode begins the single most insane oneer of the entire <laughs> series. I'm just gonna say it. And this show became famous for its oneer. From a distance mm -hmm. away, we pick up a Jeep across the tarmac and hear Midge and Susie mid conversation. When the Jeep turns and heads uh, toward us, as it gets closer, our camera POV falls in place with it. So the camera was stationary. And then suddenly when this Jeep is moving at a rapid pace, we're suddenly, not 50 feet from it we're we're riding right along with it yeah maintaining perfect focus between the hero car and the camera car that is impossible that jeep lands and while our camera doesn't seem to step out of its car it is now somehow on foot again staying in pace with midge and susie as they walk from the jeep that is done so seamlessly it doesn't even cross your mind what while you're watching no. it what no. just happened we're still in the water as Midge and Susie are met by Sergeant Burns, 
who's upset because you guessed it. This is the army. And you're not supposed to be late in the army. That's just great. Yeah. How many times they had to rehearse uh -huh. all of this? Because as the camera continues to never stop moving and, and stays with them as they walk into the hangar, there's all sorts of things going on behind them. Right. Yes. Um, there's like a, a Western band maybe that's walking by in the background. Oh, right. Right. There's all sorts of, because it's a show and there's, yeah just constant movement of people uh it's just so yeah miss america is being introduced or something eventually on stage so yeah so yeah. Our, ca our camera never stops moving myriad of perfectly dressed staged background actors who represent everyone from other performers who are there to also entertain the troops to a photographer more on him later so the camera continues to stay in, st I, I, I took me an hour to write this down. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, it's good. It's good. The camera continued to stay in step with Midge, Susie, and Sergeant Burns as his instructions and Midge's confusion over having to sing White Christmas during the finale later play out. This wonder is nowhere near over. Sergeant <laughs> Burns then hands Midge off to another soldier who escorts her to the foot of the stairs, and then he escorts her to a third. She comments on the grip of these soldiers. Let's not forget that our one camera shot is now also moving up these stairs, having never ventured upstairs. It just lands with her on the stage, but from now the back of the stage through the dancers, we see Midge move across, uh, being guided by this third soldier. Have uh, She waves to the audience, and then he, he <laughs> the camera moving all along. Um, let's see, doing some 10 feet away so that in fact, we can once again, take in the scope of the airplane hangar filled with GIs. She crosses over waving to the 980 gathered. She continues across this massive station until she is met by a third, a fourth soldier cracking wise. This is how rumors are started. Midge <laughs> says, which is just, you know, these little <laughs> gems that they just mm -hmm. no opportunity missed. Right. Yeah. Oh, and let's not forget that as Midge was ushered down some more stairs on the other side of the stage onto the hangar floor, our camera somehow also got off the stage and yeah. into this angel-like gliding motion and never signaling to us that it, it ventured anywhere, but once yeah. again is on eye level with her um, without losing the focus the entire time. I don't, I, I have how to find out how much. Is this Eric? Is this David Mullins that's doing this? Is this Eric? Well, who? well, it's David Mullen. Out. It's David, definitely David Mullen. But it's it's Jim McConkey is our Steadicam operator, uh, who, who I will have on the show and ask all these questions because this is way beyond just magician. one Steadicam. There's all kinds of things happening, um, and sure enough, then Susie rejoins yeah. Mid <laughs> at the, the other side. We're not we're not done. Uh, Sergeant Burns comes back with further instructions uh and 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 then that they're, they're loaded into another jeep and as it drives out of the hangar finally we roll the title credit card of the show and you're right if if you're if you're aware of camera you do have to watch it again right away yeah how did this yeah happen? It's, it's it's like yeah. magic or something. What? It is a magic trick. I do want to point out that Tom yeah. Lipinski portrayed Sergeant Burns. So great. So good. As is the entire supporting cast. And the dancers mm -hmm. 
for genius. And of course, our phenomenal choreographer, Marguerite Derricks, who simply, mm -hmm. we, you, you cannot say enough about what she does for the show and what she does for this episode. Yeah, yeah. Oh my, my goodness. Um, had had you been involved in these kind of wonders on other projects? I mean, most of the people who work on this show that I've talked to, it's unprecedented. But I never want to assume that that's the case. No, I mean, I mean, every once in a while, there's a a film, a student film, where they're trying to <laughs> do a really long shot, and then you learn how hard that is, Mostly um, and why it's have, not really ever done. <laughs> they don't have time for coverage. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Necessity. But it seems like it would be a lot of, I mean, possibly tedious, but in the best way to rehearse it and how pleasing it would be to have that, to get that timing right for everybody. Uh, like, yeah. oh, the satisfaction of that. Yeah. And then oh. to hear Amy say, that's perfect. Keep it. Let's do it again. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. So good. Yeah, yeah. So good. Um, have, you, then, have you done like long one oneers like that before? Uh, no, no, no. And since I started directing a few years ago, um, it's now all I ever want to do is mm. well direct, but also oneers. And and you coming and so many others from the theater. This is so spectacular yeah yeah i mean for me it's beyond the most challenging and the most rewarding um yeah it's, it's it was devastatingly difficult for me to wrap my head around. Wait, i'm sorry so we're not gonna shoot a master and just need to be okay not great until we come <laughs> in for the coverage this whole thing is coverage but there's no coverage what i don't even under what yeah yeah it's, it's I, brain I guess as, as like a director that really gives you complete control of the timing and what happens and you don't have to worry about fixing it later it's all like now. but there's also the worry of i can't fix it later uh that's the truly bold part mm, of the honor mm. because you can really create paste in post yeah uh you can't in a one right. which is why I've I've heard pace it up Kevin so many times <laughs> <laughs> because they can't fix me in post oh, but boy. I but I'm not the only one who feels that way hmm. yeah and yeah it it is it is very very exciting to do as a filmmaker and storyteller but but the most ridiculous the first time you get to post and you look at the one and you go why is, is this as slow to you as it seems to me? <laughs> because there's nothing you can do. Nothing you can do. Yeah. I guess you'd speed it up first. Just speed it up. Do like a Monty Python, yeah. not Monty Python, the Benny Hill thing with it. Yes. Right. <laughs> right. Of course. <laughs> Under crank. But then, but also mm -hmm. it's the, it's the, the timing, you know, these little beats of nuance that take place within mm -hmm. this one or one of the soldiers that's walking mid across. He, she asks him a question and he just looks at her and doesn't respond. And Jamie, who sat next to me watching things, we've been together 15 years and, you know, it's always the insiders ruining everything. And now all mm -hmm. she sees are the problems too. Um, 
she knows that when an actor is in a moment like that with like this soldier with Midge and doesn't speak, it's because they have to pay them more if they speak. Oh, uh, which is often the case. I don't know if it was in this particular case, but that is very often the case. But this guy, this actor is so wonderful the way so he good. looks at Midge and then looks back straight ahead. Yeah. Not as if he's been yelled at by Amy to pace up that look, but he's been yelled at by Sergeant Burns. Right. To, right. to, never, to, to never make <laughs> eye contact for more than a second. Don't speak. And if yeah. I was that actor, I would be so nervous because, you know, it's a oneer, so you don't want to be the person that messes it up. Like, and the, oh, God, and the wonder, please don't let me mess it up. The wonder took place over a mile of floor yeah. right. <laughs> before they got to you. <laughs> right. Uh, Talk about pressure, no pressure there, right? Yeah. To you. Uh, um, I don't know if I've told the story of, of um, well, Ken will cut this out if I have, but it's worth sharing for with you and and the audience. So that the cradle will rock. Is that a movie you remember? It was a period piece about uh, the time of the theater, Mercury, Mercury Theater, I think that Hausman and and um, Orson Welles created. It's a period piece in the twenties. So this particular Tim Robbins directed. Bill Murray and a bunch of great actors are in it. And, and this one scene takes place in this two block uh, outdoor, of course, that is dressed for the 20s wardrobe and production design. But this particular shot takes seven hours to set up. There are five cameras in motion, one coming down on a crane and it's a steady cam. He steps off the crane. There's so much going on. It takes seven hours to set up this thing. And there are 200 background actors along with it and he's shooting it in a way so that our main actors who are walking through this cacophony are almost in a robert altman way passing off who speaks in a, in a in an audio transitional way that's happening so after seven hours of setting this up tim robinson's sitting behind the five monitors at at the video village the first ad has a giant megaphone with which he yells and action and all of these pieces start moving and all of these cameras start capturing this shot that took seven hours to set up and about 38 seconds into this three minute shot an, a background actor bumps into someone and and says oh shit sorry cut <laughs> <laughs> and tim robbins at video village the headphones come flying off his head as he races into the crowd and it screams, let's just say an 11 minute diatribe of how no one yells cut on his set. And do you know what you just did? He loses his shit as we've all uh, in life have done. Um, but he really, really loses it for, for, uh, for a long 11 minutes. It felt like an hour as it's told, but, just calling out everything that could possibly go wrong and how you you're the one that stops all of these people from working and just loses it it takes another hour 45 minutes or so to reset <clears throat> this whole thing they're finally ready to shoot again robin's behind the five monitors 200 extras every background actors everybody's in place ready to go first ad back with the megaphone and 
action. Six seconds into this shot, Bill Murray goes, and cut! <laughs> As the only actor maybe in history who could have done it. <laughs> he takes the shot. And he scores as Tim Robbins just starts crying with laughter, <laughs> realizing the shit sandwich that's just been served up to him. Oh. And he eats every morsel and and, <laughs> and laughs. Because again, Bill Murray was the only one who could have said, Yeah. You might yeah. have overreacted. <laughs> <laughs> The, the the ultimate story I've ever heard on we don't want to be the one to blow the shot. Oh god, yeah. so good. <laughs> yeah. And I don't it doesn't pertain whatsoever in any way, shape, or form, other than just to really, really zero in on the best, the best of the worst of what can happen. Yeah. When you yeah. attempt these absurd shots and how every single person feels this um, yeah, you know, just just this. Jew davening inside their heads. Please don't be the one. Please don't be the one. Please don't be. The one. You can't be the one. It's almost like within a one yeah. of no one's actually in the moment. There's no. Yeah. But these performances yeah. and and you mentioned at the top of it, Midge and Susie in the Jeep, their banter. Oh, they're sparkling, like sparking, just lightning uh, fast. Yeah. And and the yeah. timing and the performances are deeply uh nuanced and yeah. yeah yeah it's not two frightened actors trying to not fuck up no the no <laughs> not at all yeah yeah and i just it's that's one of the things i love about the show is that i can't i just look at it like a baby like wow i'm just amazed and i completely forget that i'm an actor that i've ever done anything or that how anything works and i'm able to just be completely swept away by the story and what they're doing yeah um, that's a great it's, way to put it. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, so it's, good. Su it's such a, yeah. So then we're, next we're in this sort of dressing room area that is set up somewhere. <laughs> yeah. Uh, where we see again, Marianne Mobley, who in 1959, according to her sash, she's Miss America. Um, she's hilarious. Wonderfully Hilarious. portrayed by Amanda Dela Cruz. Um, yeah, and, and and Midge needs to change. Susie needs to make it clear there should be no dick jokes, and we are thankfully treated <laughs> treated to a couple, several of which are just hilarious. Oh, good, Richard. The Richard uh, one was good. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 Uh, and so not like the show it's almost like a writer's yeah. gift to be able to comment on here's something we would never do and oh by mm. the way here's how you should do it yeah if you're gonna and it's then a it's weird... a lady making these jokes too is also it's a weird clinic on yeah. on okay you know what people if you're gonna be potty mouthed try it this way be yeah. this damn creative yeah and, anywho and you're right. And she just is, she's like a machine gun with them. They just bam, 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 one after another coming out of that dressing. And the joy <laughs> of just trying. Screen. Yeah. The joy <laughs> of just trying to make Susie laugh. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Which reminded me earlier, just a little few beats before this, when 
the fourth time Midge tries to make one of the soldiers laugh. And Susie says, let it go. Midge makes uh, a flippant, flippant comment yeah, to, yeah. To, the, yeah, to the guys helping her into the Jeep. And Susie says, let it go. And Midge says, never. That challenge of, mm-hmm. I mean, I unfortunately can relate to that. There's no off switch thing. And when you're <laughs> around nothing but stiffs, there is this uncontrollable urge to make them laugh. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and you just, you just, it, it can't stop. It's very, very sad. Um, <laughs> then next uh, in the barracks on a phone call, Susie uh, takes this call and there are three fellas gathered around a table back at the stage deli. Um, oh gosh. Andy Polk right. is one of them. My old pal, Andy Polk. Oh yeah. Playing Fred, yeah. the sort of lead mm-hmm. guy. You've worked yeah. with, with Andy Polk, have you? Yeah. He was on the band's visit. Uh, oh yeah yeah oh, yeah wow. he's great and he's so great in this and in several mm-hmm. episodes and in everything mm-hmm. i see him in, he's just great yeah 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 um and it's quickly explained that they've been taxed with helping Susie negotiate midge's contract she doesn't Susie. it's a great way to let us know or view Susie learning the job as she's doing it um she doesn't know what to ask for they're trying to look up old contracts <laughs> of what people were paid it's very very funny and and, and you just assume authentic so and so made ten dollars a night when they opened yeah. up. This, yeah and but then they point out my favorite part make sure she she needs to make a weird ask <laughs> weird asks have you ever had a weird ask have you ever um no, but Witness. I have been told. Yeah. I have been told that it's how you know that they've read the contract. It's not so much that you need these things, but it's a sign that the contract has been read and taken seriously. Yes. Yeah. In fact, yeah. I think it was Van Halen that was on tour who insisted on the brown M&Ms being taken out of the bowl. And they did it <laughs> for that sole reason. Yeah. And I don't yeah. think most people know that. Um, write to us at the podcast if you know that it, it isn't Ben Halen, so I can correct myself in the wraparound. Um, but there was a band, and and I did hear one of them explain, yeah, we just we we weren't quote unquote those people. We it was the only way we'd ever know if they read the contract. Like a canary in a coal mine, sort of. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. So you you personally haven't had a weird ask. Have no. you ever wit- have you ever witnessed a weird ask from someone you were working with? I know it's funny. Sometimes I'll arrive at some private gig backstage for stand up, and they'll say, "Is this is this fruit plate okay? Is this we were told you have to?" I was like, "Yeah, okay, ease up on the. It's gonna be uh, all right. It's gonna yeah. be all right." I they listen. They ask me my my reps. Is there anything you want in in the dressing room? And I would say no. Yeah, yeah, but anything? Uh water? Water? Bo- yeah. Bottled water. Okay. Yeah. Anything else? I and they just press you and they force you. So then it ends up me letting this person trying to talk them down from the clock tower with the M16 saying it's okay. It's gonna be okay. <laughs> I the didn't food, really want this anyway. <laughs> I'm not gonna eat it. Would they you made like, me ask. Would you like some of the fruit that sits before us? Yeah. No, I haven't witnessed anything, not yet, but when I do, I will let you know. Okay, good. Any word asks. 
yeah. please. I'll make a note. Yeah. And anyone listening, please write in all the strange asks you've ever heard of. Because I, I, you do sort of become obsessed when you hear about, you're reminded, oh, right, the weird ask thing. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. And they even list a few when they're explaining to Susie on the phone, so-and-so yeah. asked for this. Yeah. And I, I haven't asked Amy, but my assumption is they didn't make those up. Oh. But I'm, I'm, I'm going to find out. Yeah. If they did make them up, I bet they were extremely researched um, right. references, I yeah. would imagine. And yeah. maybe applied to famous names. Yeah. Uh, uh, yeah. Yeah. We'll find out. Uh, then we're back at the Hangar Show. Midge and Susie, it's showtime. And they, Midge is being introduced. Before she takes the stage, we get a very classic tick, tits up moment between Midge <laughs> and Susie. Um. Yeah, this, of course, becomes the runner, one of the runners uh, that continues to bond their relationship. But Midge bounds up the stage. She's absolutely fearless. And I will tell you, there is an excitement in a natural-born performer. Um, I, I direct The first thing movie I directed was a documentary about funny people. It's called Misery Loves Comedy. And it's really the premise is, do you have to be miserable to be funny? Hmm. Um, so I talked to about 60 annoyingly famous, funny people. It's a talking heads documentary. It's not really impressive in terms of filmmaking, but you know, there, there, there's a wide range of how miserable you have to be. Uh, but the level of I'm most comfortable when I'm on stage versus in real life is pretty high. Um, and taking the stage is, is a, is a, a want and a need. And so it, it tends to come with more excitement than nerves. Mm. Um, in fact, I was just speaking with someone at my weekly poker game and they, we, they were asking me about appearing on the tonight show with Johnny Carson and how nervous you must've been backstage before you go out. And I would say it was like Christmas morning. Every time I was so excited a Christmas morning for a child. I mean, it was just pure excitement. There wasn't any thoughts of, oh man, I hope I don't screw this up. I don't know why. Oh, how it, great. it was just the, the, the instant or being present in the moment to celebrate what was happening, right? Yeah, yeah. Kind of crazy. Yes, I know it's a weird, awkward transition and where to end episode one decision. My apologies, but um, you know, I you'll hopefully understand as you listen to part two, which again, hopefully you will, why I chose that moment. Any, anyways, big, big thanks to Katrina Lang. She is an exceptional talent and we will continue to break down the episode. Um, There'll be a little less of my interrupting with my glorious stories <laughs> in part two uh, and a little more of uh, Katrina. Thank you all very much for dialing us in and um, uh, continue to write to us at mymrsbazelpot at gmail.com. Again, major, major, major thanks to Katrina Lank, the Tony Award-winning Katrina Lank. Um, and uh, yeah, so write to us. Tell us uh, your, your thoughts and comments and questions about part one of episode 21. I would love to see how many of you agree with me that this was a um, good decision <laughs> to, 
to break this into two parts. Um, in terms of where I chose to break it up, uh, as it turns out, and you may have guessed, there was no great option. This was an option. So apologies and, uh, and gratitude for your indulgence. Um, hey, shall we uh, open up the mailbag? I believe I threatened the reading of a, of a fan mail, and, um, and damn it, I, I meant it. So, uh, yeah, let's open up the mailbag. We open the mailbag to uh, a, a fan mail from Travis from Roanoke, Virginia. Uh, let's see. Travis writes, thank you for doing these podcasts. I really enjoy them. With the above-referenced podcast, I would like to know the meaning behind the saying crisscross between Chester and Susie. Is it because they are doing the same thing at the Catskills? Or is it because their paths keep crossing? To me, it seems to have a deeper meaning. Thank you. Signed, Travis. Well, Travis, look at you. Look at you and Dee Dee. Um, yeah, all right. Uh, listen, Connor Ratliff was a phenomenal guest on this here podcast. I, I'm going to bring him back. I love talking to him. Um, and uh, I reached out to him to get an answer to your question, Travis. So here now is uh, the man in question, Connor Ratliff. Thank you for your question. Uh, I, I always assumed that Chester was saying crisscross as a reference to the Hitchcock movie, Strangers on a Train, uh, which is a, a film from 1951, a thriller uh, based on the Patricia Highsmith novel about uh, two strangers, who uh, one of whom is a psychopath, who, who approaches the other man and proposes an idea for a murder swap, uh, whereby each of them would kill someone on behalf of the other person so that uh, you'd have two killings. Um, uh, they'd have alibis for the murders that they wanted to have happen, uh, but then no no motive for the murders that they would actually be committing. Um, and uh, the phrase crisscross uh, is used in that movie with a similar sort of tone. And, and, and I always thought, uh, even though obviously Chester is not proposing such a scheme uh, with Susie, uh, but he's sort of using that as a way of uh, insinuating that they are kindred spirits, that they each are there in the cat school in the Catskills running the same uh scam uh pretending that they're uh working there when in fact they are uh not supposed to be there um and again i never asked dan or amy if it was uh um, specifically referencing that movie uh but also there were other scenes with chester uh, there was a scene specifically where chester was coming out of a shower and there was a bird in the scene and i i, I thought I wonder, are they always layering Hitchcock references around Chester? Because Chester is in some ways uh, very much like a uh, uh, the kind of character who lurks around uh, uh, in various Hitchcock films. Um, so that's my two cents on it. I, I, I think it is um, uh, sort of he, he's insinuating himself uh, into Susie's life uh, with a kind of familiarity as if they are they're 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 birds of a feather in a way, and I, I think the crisscross was his his way of like uh, linking them, making them uh, um, complicit in one another's schemes at the Catskills. 
I could be wrong, but that's how I always interpreted it. Okay, closing credits time. My Mrs. Maisel pod was created by me, your host, Kevin Pollack, research writer, producer, Jamie Fox, and our engineer, recording, post-production producer genius is Ken Plume. My Mrs. Maisel pod is brought to you by the fine folks at QCO. QCO. Sounds like something, doesn't it? Oh, lastly, you should know told by legal to make this crystal clear that my Mrs. Maisel pod was not sanctioned in any way, shape, or form by Amazon Prime, nor the show's creators, Amy Sherman Palladino and Dan Palladino, although I feel the need to mention I did get their blessing. Okay, good. That should save me some legal fees. In the 1970s, John Todd burst onto the evangelical scene with a shocking tale. He claimed to be a former witch involved in a then unheard of secret organization called the Illuminati and urged Christians to prepare for a violent world takeover. First of all, the number one weapon in everybody's home should be a 12-gauge pump shotgun. Hear the amazing story of one of the originators of the modern-day conspiracy theory. From Magnificent Noise and Sony Music Entertainment, this is Cover Up, The Conspiracy Tapes. Welcome to a journey into the heart of the Texas Renaissance Festival, the nation's largest and rowdiest celebration of medieval fantasy. But what lurks beneath the facade of tights and turkey legs? Well, we dove deep into the empire to uncover a history marred by mystery and misconduct murders, assaults, and other crimes that tarnish its legacy. This isn't just a fairy tale, it's a cautionary tale of power, fantasy, and the consequences that follow when they all collide. Search for Crime Waves Renaissance Texas on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening now. Everyone needs a break from the real world. That's why we played games as kids, and that's why we should play games as adults. I'm Troy Lavalley. And I'm Joe O'Brien. And back in 2015, we started a podcast called The Glass Cannon Podcast, a show made up of comedians and actors playing a fantasy role-playing game. And now is the perfect time to start listening because we just started a brand new story. It's basically Lord of the Rings meets Game of Thrones meets X-Files. Search for The Glass Cannon Podcast on your podcast app of choice. Hey, life is hard, so come play pretend with us.